I think if you're making a cop movie, you have a duty to interrogate it. You also have a duty to make the movie if that if that movie is needs to be made. For me, I think there is so much to explore with these types of characters. And again, it's like I don't know that we will necessarily do another cop movie. We're definitely moving to a time when we're interrogating it more and really interrogating some of the things that we just had gotten used to seeing on TV and not questioning. I think that's that's a very good thing. Hello, and welcome to episode four of An Invitation to Destroy, a limited chronological deep dive of the 2018 neo-noir Destroyer, written by Phil Hay and Matt Manfredi, and directed by Karn Kasama. I'm your host, Jim Panola. During each episode, I start by reading a scene or scenes from the original script adapting the screenplay into an immersive audio narrative with a full cast and a brand new soundtrack, followed by an analysis of those scenes, simultaneously highlighting the merits of the screenplay while exploring the final cut of the film, ideally shedding light on all of the unique components that contribute to the movie and how each of those elements fit into the greater thematic ideas of the story. This series is very much a labor of love that is completely independent and ad-free. So if you enjoy the show, please take a minute to rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. It allows us to reach more listeners and simply helps a great deal with visibility. If you want to go above and beyond, I have a Patreon subscription page at patreon.com slash jimpanola with no underscores where your hard-earned dollars get you access to a wealth of bonus material, and it directly funds this podcast. Thank you so much for your consideration. One final note I'd like to make is that, while this podcast will naturally contain spoilers for Destroyer, of course, my general aim is not to get too ahead of myself with the discussion of each scene as it's addressed. In other words, While I may hint at things that have yet to happen, at times, throughout the podcast, I want to make this series as accessible as possible for both people who have and have not seen the film, or read the screenplay before, for that matter. So, without further ado, today's installment is a reading of pages 16 through 22 of the Destroyer screenplay. Let's begin. Exterior. Sunset Boulevard. Night. Belle waits by her car outside the bar. We hear the sound of a phone call. A voice answering. Go ahead. Yeah. I need a favor. Copy that. An unmarked sedan. Pulls up. Belle goes to her car, opens the trunk, and retrieves a gray, hard case. The trunk pops on the sedan. Belle puts in her gear, gets in. Interior car, continuous. At the wheel, Antonio, 30, African American, Belle's partner. 
young for a detective, a comer, calm but sharp. Bell gets in, closes the door. Thanks. Shit, Bell. You smell like a pirate. Rum and coke, man. You can do better than that. Have some self-respect. There's no better than that. He glances at her, a quick, warm smile as he pulls into traffic. Silence. Bell stares out the window. You okay? She nods. It just got away from me tonight. How often that happens? Bell rolls her head over, shoots him a look. All right. They drive for a long moment. She looks at him, gauging. Look, I got some shit to deal with. Okay. Family shit? Doctor shit? Yeah. I got a yeast infection. Jesus. This is my workplace, man. Work shit. So, tell me. That's my point. I need a little... room to move. I miss a meeting or two, and maybe a cover. No. We work it together. She shakes her head. I'll bring you in when it's time. Antonio looks at her. Bullshit. <sighs> Give me this, Antonio. It's nothing out of bounds. I'm not gonna jeopardize your rise to the top. Fuck you. Throw me a bone when you're mayor. Captain's pension or something. Partner nods, taking it. You gotta rep as a partner, you know. I know. This ain't helping. You love me, though. Do I? Hmm. I can see it in your eyes. I'm not looking at you. A pause. We good on this? If you wash your hair. <laughs> How many of those drinks actually got in your mouth? Enough of them. Interior, Bell's house. Night. We observe Bell from a distance as she eats. Watch her behave. Preoccupied, she huddles over her food like a starving animal, protecting it from someone who wants to take it away. She raises her head, alert. Creature who has caught something on the wind. She listens. Looks out the window down to the street. Nothing there. Interior crawl space. House. Angelino Heights. Morning. For a moment, we watch Ethan, a man in his 40s, work under a house. It's hot. He's sweating as he tries to connect a duct. It won't fit quite right. A male voice from above. Ethan, come up. No way! Am I climbing back out of here? Come on, cops. Ethan lets out his breath, starts to shimmy out. Exterior house, Angelino Heights. Ethan moves across the lawn toward Belle, who waits outside her car. He gestures at the house, his van in the driveway, advertising his HVAC business on the side. I'm working. Okay. How'd you know I was here? She points to the number on the side of his van. Touches her temple. People who live here don't want a cop coming around. It looks... I'm not in uniform. Whatever. Looks weird. I could be your probation officer or something. Yeah. I hope that's the takeaway. I saw Shelby last night. Oh, yeah? Where? A bar. Doesn't surprise me. Called you. 
she doesn't respond. Some nights she doesn't come home. Texts, maybe, to tell me. Shows up at school for attendance, I guess. Leaves. That's stupid at school. They catch up after like a week. She's staying with that little shithead. Jay. Jay. What a fucking gem. You tried to talk to her? Yeah. Maybe you should try again. Because I don't fucking know. She doesn't say shit I don't to have me. a lot of time or sympathy for her fucking issues right now. He shakes his head. Okay. What? Just... Okay. She looks over at his van. How's money? He shakes his head. No interest in talking about it. What are we going to do? I just pulled a case. So I should deal with it. She chose to live with you. Right. I'm saying it's going to take me away for a while. So who's dead? Nobody. A John Doe. It's complicated. As she walks away, he shakes his head. Turns away. Well, always great to see you. She walks on. How do you make a cop movie in an ACAB world? Originally, I was anticipating this episode to be an exploration of Aaron Bell's relationships to the men in her life, how her restless conniving allows her to keep people like her police partner Antonio or her ex-romantic partner Ethan at arm's length, permitting her the space she needs to execute her plans unencumbered. Originally, I wanted to dissect the ways the deleted scene with Detective Antonio serves to streamline Bell's story, but also minimizes the only major black character's screen time as a result. Originally, I thought I might discuss the fact that Ethan is likely the most decent person in the film, the most decent principal character, and ask, how is he treated because of that? How is he treated despite that? His HVAC business is even called Coyote Canyon Heat and Air, which feels like a deliberate nod to the invitation, if not the filmmaker's intended LA trilogy. These details still interest me, but they pale in comparison to that first question. How do you make a cop movie in an ACAP world? Or in my case, how do you maturely discuss a movie that you love, that exists in these realms, in these categories. This wasn't one of my core inquiries when starting this series, as the opening episode unfortunately points out, but it's a question now, because the answer is simple. Don't. And sure, Destroyer predates the murder of George Floyd and the shift in our culture that more readily acknowledges the depth of inherent cruelty in law enforcement but it postdates Michael Brown, Ferguson, Rodney King, Los Angeles, Emmett Till, Mississippi. It succeeds centuries of inhumanity. What then? 
How do I justify an entire series centered around a cop, even a fictional one? Even one that is clearly framed as flawed and fucked up. How? Maybe I say to myself, well, Miami Vice, one of my other favorite movies, is getting a massive reappraisal lately, and that's way more pro-cop than Destroyer. When questions like this have literally kept me up at night, all I can do is write, and write honestly, and speak honestly. It's not about, is Destroyer a good movie, nor is it about, is it pro-cop or anti-cop? Because I can argue all day about the answers to those questions. It's about the fact that cops are continuously the stars of our news cycle, as well as our multiplexes, where they have used both to be mythologized as heroes. Maybe this wouldn't be as big of a problem if police didn't constantly weaponize the media to lie and shape public narrative. The tragedy and subsequent fiasco surrounding Robb Elementary School in Uvalde, Texas, reminded us of this in the worst possible way. They've been trying to block information about that day. We already knew that they waited far too long to confront the shooter. But now we found out that they lied about not having enough weapons to go in. Because it turns out they had assault rifles, they had body armor, and ballistic shields. They didn't even try to get in the classroom. As Luke O'Neill, author of the Welcome to Hell World newsletter says, quote, Police lie as easily as they kill, because who is going to stop them? End quote. Facing any real consequences, like Floyd's killers, for example, required a global movement mid-pandemic. And even then, it was a nail-bitingly close affair that required constant pressure. Said another way, cops live outside the world of consequences. But maybe that's why Destroyer is as cathartic as it is, at least for me. As Karn Kasama says on the film's audio commentary. The irrationality of Aaron Bell screaming out, no one is fucking accountable. But the irony, particularly on second viewing, is watching it and understanding that she's really speaking to herself. Most times, it feels like only fiction could ever portray a cop facing real repercussions, be they legal or otherwise, because reality certainly can't. And when the real world does, it is the exception, not the rule. Destroyer, at least, tests the resilience of the police as heroes myth. It does so in such a way that the protagonist's lack of consequences is placed somewhere in the foreground to be considered and not just accepted. Where the questions become, if you get away with something, like Aaron does, what are you not getting away with? What is the emotional, spiritual, and mental toll? And how long before that internal cost spirals perniciously into your external world before it cascades into a fractal of broken relationships. Or, as writer Anna Swanson more concisely declares in her essay titled Destroyers in Praise of Karin Kasama's Dangerous Women, quote, Bell's messy feelings don't warrant a redemption. That she's a woman who endured a traumatic event doesn't mean we should forgive her. End quote. While I clearly struggle with the effect of a cop-centered story, even a complex one, that feeling is mercifully offset by Kasama's evident comfort in neither saving nor damning Aaron Bell. 
Distinctions like this are ultimately why I remain as attracted to Destroyer as I am, even now, and why I wrestle and engage with it, because it is not a story mired by a fear of irrelevance like, say, Bad Boys for Life is, a movie which provides an interesting yet relevant counterpoint. The action movie trilogy following the duo of Detective Mike Lowry, played by Will Smith, and Detective Marcus Burnett, played by Martin Lawrence, may have started as a more gonzo maximalist showcase of Michael Bay's signature Bayhem, but its third installment, directed by Adil El Arbi and Bilal Falah, attempts something a little different, something that aims at a type of reconciliation. As author Soraya Nadia MacDonald writes in her review of the film, titled Can Bad Boys Become Good Men, quote, The latest installment in the series is consumed with questioning whether films of its ilk are becoming obsolete and what might arise as a viable alternative. And it uses the contrast between Mike and his millennial colleagues on the police force to do so. End quote. Destroyer doesn't have to walk on these kinds of eggshells, and it doesn't have to worry about being obsolete because it was never meant to cast police officers as people to be admired in the first place. Even if it did, many would argue that this genre can simply be enjoyed without any need to neatly fit into the complicated, evolving jigsaw of our morality and awareness. And I would agree. Maybe the simplest summary is the most telling. I enjoy Destroyer, and Destroyer is an implicit endorsement of police. The latter statement is part and parcel of the genre, even when the story is explicitly critical of the occupation, like it is in, say, Robocop or Die Hard. It is intrinsic. As Phil Hay suggests in this episode's opening quote, taken from his interview with Dan Benamore, Destroyer's main concern is using the arena of cop movies to explore the nature of pain and regret through an intensely flawed human being, through an intensely flawed line of work. We can and should hold real-world cops' feet to the fire. We should continue to think three-dimensionally about their on-screen depictions, always. Simultaneously, we can recognize and enjoy when fiction presents that profession as a means of emotional interrogation, and not just a blunt arm of propaganda. If an invitation to the invitation was powered by my own personal heartache, i.e. feeling seen by the film's depiction of suffocating social decorum and how it intersects with pervasive grief, then an invitation to Destroyer is driven by my sense of anxiety around the need to reconcile my love of dark stories with their cumulative real-world effects. None of this is an admonishment of the writing and direction of Destroyer or any aspect of its creation. Rather, it's a deeper acknowledgement of my own self-appointed task. Because excavating a film with this level of scrutiny would be disingenuous if it ignored anything less than a 360-degree perspective. So, on the cusp of reorganizing my approach to this podcast, both for the above reasons as well as more practical ones, I'm struck by one of Destroyer's great magic tricks that I never quite noticed until now. Spoilers follow. 
By the end of the film, we're brought back to the same exact time and place as its opening scene, revealing the circular structure of the story, revealing that Aaron has, in essence, been investigating herself for the murder of the anonymous John Doe in the beginning. Her journey is a circle, indicative of a toxic pattern of self-destruction, a song of arid decay on repeat. Though Bell and the overall film have completed their structural and thematic ellipse, there's a key detail at the center. Bell has changed. She may have formed a malicious cycle before our eyes, but not without handing Antonio evidence of her guilt, including but not limited to a stained bill and the key to her storage unit. She then pays the ultimate price as she bleeds out in her car. All of which forms a crack in the perfect circle of her immunity. She could have taken all of her secrets with her, but didn't. Is this too little too late? Is it a fitting punishment? Is she still escaping punishment even now? In terms of Belle's own personal absolution, yes, it's probably too late, but it's still satisfactory from a storytelling viewpoint, because Belle's quasi-confession only adds an additional layer of tragedy to her story, a reminder that no amount of evidence can undo her worst mistakes. Belle's concentric patterns of death and harm were always a foregone conclusion. It's in the title. We see it play out in her past as well as her present creating a scathing prison of rings around her. What wasn't a forgotten conclusion was Belle claiming any sense of duty or responsibility for those things. It may not be much, but in the story of Aaron Bell, in the story of someone who's built a precarious life and career on avoidance, it is. I long to elevate this obsessive analysis beyond a flat circle, and into a tangible sphere, into a realm where we won't end up where we started, hopefully. But even if we do, then, perhaps like Aaron, we'll have at least looked inward along the way, and taken a modicum of accountability by the time we return. An Invitation to Destroyer is written, produced, and hosted by me, Jim Panola, and stars Eileen Anglin as Aaron Bell. Original score is by John Panola. Additional artwork by Logan Riley and Piper Schauberg. Graphic design is by Joseph Panola. Executive producer is John Panola. Our featured actors this episode are Dwight Knowles as Antonio and Jess Kellner as Ethan. Additional voiceover is by Eleanor Alger. Follow us on Twitter at an invitation, no underscores, and follow us on Instagram at invitation to invitation. That's invitation, the number two invitation with no underscores. Special thanks to Phil Hay, Matt Manfredi, and Karin Kasama. Additional thanks on this episode to Dan Benamore, Sarah Gore, and Film Crit Hulk. And thank you for listening. Again, don't forget to rate and review an invitation to Destroyer on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. It's a small action that makes a big difference. 
Similarly, please spread the word if you enjoyed this episode and tell a friend about the show who you think might like it. And once more, I have a Patreon subscription page at patreon.com slash chimpanola with no underscores. For just a couple dollars a month, you can get a wealth of written and audio bonus content that includes, but is not limited to, early access, exclusive extended cuts, as well as the official companion podcast to an invitation to Destroyer titled Ellipsis, where you can hear my full, uncut chats with super fans of the movie, and of course, the artists that made the film itself. I'm really excited about this and want to share with as many patrons as possible. On that note, extra special shout out to a few of my very generous Patreon patrons, Rupa Dasgupta, John Panola, and Jane Panola. I love you guys. You're all amazing. So once more, thank you. Until next time.